Hello and welcome back to uh, So What Now. Is this your first time here? Welcome. Thank you for listening. I appreciate you choosing to take out a part of your day and listen to the show. I hope it pleases you. If it does, um, share it, give it a like. And um, okay, so the first thing that we're going to get in today is spices. I don't really do well with spices. I know a lot of people love spices. Some cuisines are criticized for not being spicy enough. Some are too spicy, blah, blah, blah. It goes back and forth. Never ending debate. But is there a limit to how hot things can be? I wanted to. I wanted to find this out. And then I remembered, you already heard this. And I was like, where did I hear this? I found the podcast. I got the info. That's what I'm going to tell you now. So the heat of a chili pepper is measured in things called Scoville heat units, right? So Scoville scale. Is a, it's a tool developed by Wilbur Scoville. He developed it in 1912. And the test comprised of taking a concentration of a type of chili pepper and then diluting it in an alcohol-based liquid. And based on how many times you had to reduce the liquid would determine its heat rating. So, for example, a jalapeno had to be reduced 5,000 times in this alcohol-based liquid, and then it got a rating of 5,000, which is crazy because I thought that when we were talking about something that generalized the heat of chili peppers, it was some standardized measured thing that we could test. It wasn't dependent on those people. Because imagine if you got these just brutes, a bunch of Alex Pereiras, I don't know, these Terminators, and they were like, no, it's not really that bad. You could have a habanero with the 5,000 heat rating, and then the rest of us are, you know, blasting out rings of fire like Iron Man. That's not what we want. So this was developed all the way back in 1912. And it turns out that there is actually a limit to how hot peppers can get. So when you think of a chili pepper, you've obviously heard in the past that, you know, take the seeds out. But the hot part is actually the white part. So the white part of the chili pepper is called the placenta, right? So that helps the embryo of the chili while it's developing. So that's really where the spice is contained. And there's a limit to how hot they can become. So in recent times, we've had the Carolina Reaper, uh, Scorpion Chili Pepper, Trinidad. Um, oh, I forget the name of it now. But there is a there are a bunch of chilies now that have been specifically bred to be as hot as possible. And I believe the most recent one is about 2.4 million. But the limit to how hot a chili can become is actually about 16 million Scoville heat units, which I don't think anyone wants to try. And I hope will never become a YouTube challenge one day because if anyone remembers the habanero challenge day when people were eating them raw, it didn't go well. But there's something even hotter than that. So there's a thing called resin. Bear with me. This name is horrible. Resin ferrotoxin. So it's a chemical produced by this cactus like plant that's found in Morocco and Nigeria. And if you take a pure extract of the stuff, so like a really concentrated form of it, it will be about a thousand times hotter than capsaicin, which is pretty damn hot and would score about 16 billion on the Scoville heat scale. So um, those rings of fire, they are going to be strong. You might steam your toilet. That's not what we're going for. And as you know, if you don't know, water's pretty bad at cooling your mouth down. So why is that? So casein is Hydro, sorry, capsaicin is hydrophobic, which means it doesn't like water. So if you try to rinse your mouth out with water, that's not really going to help. But casein, a protein found in milk, is the opposite. It likes water. 
So it absorbs the capsaicin from the chili outside of your mouth. Whereas casein is hydrophilic, which means it likes water, can bind to the capsaicin, absorbs it, and then helps cool your mouth down. So as we mentioned, the rings of fire, everyone is familiar with the day afterwards, absolutely horrible. And that's because chilies actually have a number of benefits besides just tasting good. So they've been found to be in a natural preservative that dates really far back, you know, way before we had modern technology. And it also produces an enzyme that aids in digestion. So it can increase the spice of food, but it can also help us better digest it. On the other hand, if we eat too much of it, it can irritate our intestinal tract. And again, we don't have to say it, but the ring of fire. Nature also developed a pretty cool trick, which I thought was quite cool. So birds don't have the heat receptors that we do, which allows them to eat chilies, poop them out, and then they grow. So they're sort of like natural dispersers, nature's plants, which is, which is pretty cool. They can have them. I'm not good with them. Um, I've tried chilies. I personally prefer curries that are more flavorful, more than the heat. Um, I've tried habanero sauces. They're kind of nice, but I think that's only because other things are added to them. I don't know how I'll do by itself. The thing is, I want to try it, but I'm just scared of being that guy who's like, why are you here? And then like, I tried to eat a habanero. And then I you can... ate a whole habanero and I'm like... And then and now I'm that guy sitting at 12 a. 12 p.m. on a Friday night who tried to eat a hot pepper 17 years after the challenge ended. Um, I'm sort of the equivalent of the old man asking, what's the Facebook? I don't want to be that guy. Talking about things related to the mouth. Well, we need teeth to chew. And another thing that I discovered that I thought was kind of weird was bite marks, right? So bite marks are still used in court as evidence. So... It's sort of a key piece of evidence if you are at the scene of a crime and they're looking for traces or impact that someone caused or inflicted on another person and they find bite marks, they'll be like, okay, we're going to get an odontologist, which are people that study bite marks, teeth-related things uh, in crime investigations in order to tie them to a person or see who was involved. This turns out to be problematic. So let's start with teeth. What are teeth? Well, they're the tool we use to eat. They're incredibly important and they're made up of four things enamel which is the outermost layer dentin which is the second layer just underneath the enamel then we have cementin which is a thin layer that covers the roots and then in the inside we have the pulp that's located inside the tooth and it contains nerves and blood vessels super important we all need to look at after our teeth brush your teeth twice a day okay children have about 20 teeth Adults have about 32 teeth. And odontology, as I said, it's the speciality of dentistry that applies to study of teeth to assist in criminal investigations. Okay, now we've got the boring stuff out the way. So Dr. Freeman was a past president of the American Society of Forensic Odontology. These scientific names are so hard to say. We should just get abbreviations, but we'll message them afterwards. Okay, so the American Board of Forensic Odontology... They were kind of concerned because they noticed that there was an uptick in wrongful convictions. So they decided to study that. So what they did was they gave a bunch of dentists who had already studied teeth before their case files and they gave them a decision tree. So they showed them bite marks that they had already looked at and they asked them to confirm if it was a bite based on three choices. Bite mark... Potentially bite mark, not sure. 
And in all but a few cases, the dentist couldn't decide on exactly what was a bite mark and what wasn't, which is pretty concerning because, as I said, this is used as a key piece of evidence to convict people. And Dr. Freeman felt that he wasn't really comfortable because if this is something that we're using to put people in jail with and the experts who we go to during cases can't agree on it, perhaps it's time that we revise that maybe this isn't the best thing to do right now. The Texas Forensic Science Commission in 2016 put an end to it after a man was wrongfully convicted uh, for murder based on bite mark information. And the bite information is, is problematic for a few reasons. Like fingerprints, the arrangement of teeth are unique to all of us. So they're not all the same. And there's a few problems with that also on the side of the skin. So when we're looking at bite marks, according to the experts, we're not actually looking at the mark the teeth makes, we're looking at the mark it left, which can change over time if the body's moved, if the temperature changes. Also, depending on the condition the person has, they may bruise differently, they may bruise less, they may bruise more. The hours after the crime scene happens may remove, may add. It, it, there's a whole bunch of variables and you can't accurately tie them. Also, I've heard people say that, I mean, and these aren't confirmed, but it's difficult to tell whether exactly what was. So if there was an animal that had a similar bite compared to a human, who knows? Okay, that might be a bit easier. But at least in the case of the study with the American Forensic Odontology, when they gave dentists, and these were files that they had already looked at. So they looked at these files and they already knew them, but they just showed them the bite marks. And again, they weren't really able to confirm what they thought, even though it's something they had already worked on, which is quite scary because if this is something that could decide your future, put you in prison forever, and the person looking at it isn't sure, it's not exactly where you want to be. There's an organization, a justice organization, nonprofit in America called uh, the Innocence Project, and they believe that a quarter of people since 1989 have been convicted on false or misleading evidence. Some scary shit. Behave yourself, kids. Let's get on to our next topic. Okay. So, we are on the final subject. If you've made it this far, congratulations. Your life has been enriched. I hope you are happier. I hope you've been taking notes. There will be a quiz tomorrow. But if you're listening to this, you've been using a little thing called your brain. And the brain is pretty cool. So, I did not know this. But there is a map of the body in the brain. So there's a thing in the brain called the somatosensory cortex. The somatosensory cortex is responsible for somatic sensations. All these sensations are proprioception, so where your limbs are in space, pain, and temperature, which includes neurons for a whole bunch of body parts. And neurons are nerve cells that are found in the brain. So there will be these nerve cells for your arm, for your leg, for your face, and they'll all be grouped together. And when you put them together, they form a full representation of your body called the, and bear with me, homunculus. It's quite a cool name. And in Latin, it means a little man. So there was a man called Wilder Penfield, a neurosurgeon, who first discovered this while working on epileptic patients. The patients were awake during the surgery, and he noted that if he stimulated certain parts of the brain, that would have a corresponding effect on the body, which is pretty cool. Pretty cool. I mean, it's a bit weird. Someone just poking around your brain, but you know, science is a weird, especially back then. They used to have open surgery tables. Can we just stop and talk about this? This isn't just, well, let's take a walk. It's like, let's take a walk. Ah, uh, his arm's off. Hmm, let's take a look. And then people would just watch. I know it is open to medical students, but I'm pretty sure it is also open to the public at some point. I'm not sure. If I'm wrong, correct me. 
And then we have the motor cortex, which, as you can guess, responsible for movement. And the information is then sent to the thalamus and then to the primary somatosensory cortex. Okay, in the somatosensory cortex, body parts all look out of whack. They don't have the correct proportions. This because their size is based on the range of motion of the thing that they correspond to and the feeling of that thing. So what's interesting is that this sort of relates to the thing you've heard of phantom limb. So patients who have amputated limbs and they still uh, recall feeling the sensation of the hand even though there's no hand there. Right. In the somatosensory cortex, body parts all look out of whack. They don't have the correct proportions. This because their size is based on the range of motion of the thing that they correspond to and the feeling of that thing. So what's interesting is that this sort of relates to the thing you've heard of phantom limb. So patients who have amputated limbs and they still uh, recall feeling the sensation of the hand even though there's no hand there. So in the somatosensory cortex, so if you have the, an amputated person and the neurons that would respond to that hand are still in the brain, even though the hand isn't there, without being able to move the hand. They're sort of looking for an end that they can't reach. And it's possible that the neurons from that part of the brain react with neurons from other parts of the brain. So according to V.S. Ramachandran, uh, who was a researcher at the University of California in San Diego, a stroke of the face normally just activates the neurons in the face. But in the case of an amputated patient, the neurons in that part of the brain may get caught up with those from the face, and stroking the face could trigger a sensation on the hand. Likewise, pouring water on the face of the patient, which kind of seems rude. Imagine you go to your doctor and you're like, okay, cool, what are we doing today? Throws a jug of water at you. Not the best day. But throwing the water, or pouring water, I hope they didn't throw it, was able to trigger a sensation of feeling water on the hand, which is pretty interesting because even though your brain knows it isn't there, there's still parts of the brain that would be ready if that thing was there. That is the least scientific explanation. You can tell I'm definitely not a doctor. Um, but yeah, that was today's episode, guys. Um, let me know what you think. I had a fun time recording it. Uh, I learned a bunch of things. Um, number one, ring of fire is real. Beware. Number two, don't bite people. And the brain is pretty incredible. If you like this, please let me know. There's an option on Spotify to let me know what you thought of the episode. If you think it is good, you think it is bad, someone else might like it, share it with them. And then until next time, bye-bye.